this is our series, The Story of Esther. I was very uh, intentional and creative with the name of this series. But really part of it was I didn't want to come up with this creative name because at the, the heart of it, the story of Esther is a really unique story. It really kind of feels the more I've, I'm studying it, the more I'm breaking down because I've never just preached through the book before. There is a soap opera element that is in this book, chapter by chapter. And what's interesting, as I'm writing this, I was kind of preparing, like, I'm going to talk about Esther a lot. Today, like, I'm not really even, other than the reference what happened in chapter 1 and 2, I'm not even going to talk about Esther today. I made this statement last week. I think one of the disservices the church does to the book of Esther is we wait and say, okay, we're going to have a, a female preach. And they get to preach on Ruth, they get to preach on Esther, they get to preach on Mary or Martha, they get to pick one of those. And then we simplify the entire book of Esther down into one day. There is a lot here, and there's a lot of intricate things that are going on. So we're diving into this uh, today, and we're really not even dealing with Esther. We're dealing with Mordecai and Haman today. Uh, last week, we were introduced to the king, and the king became displeased through his, eight, um, or his uh, year and a half, 180-day party. And he became displeased with his queen, he said, uh, made an edict and said, the queen can no longer come into my presence. And so now he has to find another queen. He hosts the first, ep- or first season of The Bachelor and brings in all of these women to see who is it that's going to be my new queen. And then all of a sudden we arrive on Mordecai, who basically is um, Esther's cousin is taking care of Esther because her father has passed away and says, you really ought to go and be a part of this contest. We usually think of Mordecai as this great individual, but really he's pushing Esther along, and he really kind of does it so he can get some gain for himself, some political gain. We're going to see that today. And we have Esther that we met in this as well, who enters the competition, wins the competition, and becomes the new queen. Today we're introduced to the fourth major character of this story, and it's Haman. And he's our story's villain because every good story needs a villain. And he's going to be a very prominent addition to this today. Uh, I want to remind you as well that Esther is one of two books in the entire Bible that does not mention God's name directly. This goes back to what we were saying towards the end of worship today, that just because God's name isn't mentioned doesn't mean God's not present. And sometimes I think God's his most present when we don't necessarily see him because he's beginning to work things and move things and adjust things. And we don't know it's coming. We don't understand why it's coming until all of a sudden we sit back one day like, wow, that makes sense. I never saw that a month ago, six months ago, six years ago. But today I see it and I can understand it. I can know what God is doing. But before I read chapter 3, would you repeat after me, Heavenly Father... Your word is written in my mind and hidden in my heart. Your word is a lamp onto my feet and a light onto my path. I will seek you with all of my strength. My greatest desire is to be a disciple and to make more disciples. I will live my life according to your word. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. Here's chapter 3 of Esther. And I'm just going to give you the reminder that I uh, made the executive decision last week that instead of saying uh, the the king's name in uh, 
his, his main name, or I'm going the Greek route and saying Xerxes because Xerxes is easier for me to pronounce and I don't trip over it every single time I attempt to say it. So every time you see a Hazarus, you're going to say Xerxes, okay? Everybody with me? Just so if you weren't here last week, you're like, why is he saying a different name for the king? After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite. Wow, there we go. I got five more words in. The Agite, the son of Hamathatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, through the whole kingdom of uh, Xerxes. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, they cast per, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamathatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to all the officials over, of all the people, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree to every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion." So we can look at this. I feel like this is probably the one chapter in the book of Esther that we very quickly read over that anytime I've ever heard a sermon series on Esther, this really doesn't get a whole lot of play. It's really just kind of this feeling of Haman is trying to trick the king. He gets his way, and on we go to chapter 3. The second chapter of Esther revealed to us kind of the darkness of this empire, the idea that 
The, the king could be so easily manipulated to throw the queen out. He signs an edict, and if you remember from last week when uh, the, the Persian Empire, when they signed an edict, they could not go back on it. Even though the king is the one who made the edict, the king could not bring that edict back. And so even in this moment, this will come into play at the end of the book of Esther, that Haman puts this edict together. It has the king's signet ring on it. So it is solid, it is good, and it has to, the, to come to pass. And so we see last week that the king is manipulated, and now all of a sudden his people are saying, you know what, you should have this pageant, you should bring all these virgins in, you should allow the, uh, yourself to sleep with all of them and find the one that you really like and that they can be your queen, but all the rest of the women, they have to go in, uh, into your household of all your concubines. So you see all this kind of play out and being manipulated. We get to the very end of chapter 2 last week, and I kind of left you on a, a cliffhanger that Mordecai is in a new, unique position because Esther is queen, that he gets to kind of stand in the gate, and he has a, an official role now, and he hears a plot to kill the king. And so he passes the plot on to Esther. Esther passes it on to Xerxes. He's able to thwart the, the plan. He's able to survive. And you would think in this moment that he would get a promotion, that he would be raised up to another level, that he did something good. He, he followed and did what he knew was right and that he would get the promotion. But when we get to verse 1 of chapter 3, actually, let's even just go back for a moment. This isn't going to be on the screen, but just listen to the end of chapter 2. It's right. And uh, this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. He told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So the king knows. The king knows it was Mordecai. It was written down. It was put into history. And then we get to chapter 3. After these things, so what things? Mordecai saving the king's life and it being recorded. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Mordecai. No, Haman. And so one of the things that I need you to realize is in this moment, it would be very easy for Mordecai to say, wait a second, what's going on here? I'm the one that saved the king's life. Why is Haman getting a promotion? And we can look at this passage and wonder, because in uh, chapters 1 and 2, we talked about it last week. What is Mordecai known as? It's not Mordecai the rich, not Mordecai the poor, not Mordecai the good-looking, not Mordecai the well-dressed. It's Mordecai the Jew. Right off the bat, before we even see his name, it's a Jew named Mordecai. So he, his most distinguishing characteristic in this story is the fact that he's Jewish. And so right off the bat, what we see here is that it's Haman the Agatite. So we, we hear this right away that Haman is brought up and is raised up and Mordecai isn't. And in this time period, you might think, well, that's kind of Mordecai's problem. Why is he getting so upset that he didn't get a promotion? I didn't get the promotion that I thought I deserved. Well, in this culture, this is actually something that would have been expected for Mordecai to get this promotion. Xerxes made a man governor of Sicilia for saving his brother's life. Xerxes granted land to two ship captains who assisted in the battle against the Greek. But when it's his life that is saved, Mordecai gets nothing. Except God is already working on behalf of his people. Tuck that thought away for, in your, your head for a moment, that God did not forget Mordecai. God has not uh, said, you know what, you did what you are supposed to do, now go sit in the corner and we'll let the other uh, people play a role in the story. He has not forgotten him. 
but it does lead to this problem that we see come out in chapter 3. Haman has been elevated, and all the officials are now bowing down and showing honor to Haman. In verse 2, it even says, this is by the king's command. But Mordecai refused to pay honor or bow down to him. And at first you can look at this and see, well, it's because he's a Jew and he doesn't want to worship someone else. And he, you kind of get that imagery because uh, he even identifies, well, I'm a Jew. But it never flat out says, I can't worship you because you're not God. And in fact, when we look throughout Scripture, Mordecai would not have that to be an actual excuse that he could use. The reason being is in Genesis 23.7, Abraham bowed down to the Hittites to show them honor. In Genesis 43.28, Jacob's sons bowed down to Joseph. In Exodus 18.7, Moses bowed uh, before Jethro the Midianite. In 1 Samuel 24.8, David bowed before Saul. In 1 Kings 1.23, Nathan bowed before David. We see this track record through the Old Testament of individuals bowing down and showing respect, not worshiping. Because you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was saying, bow down before this statue to worship the image that the, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, treating this statue, this idol, as God. That's not what's happening here. It's saying, hey, he's got a position, show honor and respect to him. And when you look at all these individuals and all these situations that happened before, there is nothing that stopped Abraham, uh, Jacob, Moses, David, Nathan. It, nothing stopped them from bowing down and showing honor where honor was deserved. The point is, is this, is that his refusal to bow or show honor wasn't anything to do with righteousness or obeying God. We can kind of write that out. There's nothing in the scriptures that say that that's the reason why. And in contrast, some say that Mordecai was being vindictive, that he was mad and that he wasn't elevated. And while this might exist a little bit, it doesn't distinctly say that Mordecai was throwing a temper tantrum. And so because of his temper tantrum, he's not going to, uh, to bow down and show honor and respect. I think this is probably a little bit in the background a little bit. Uh, it doesn't distinctly say it, but when we all think about it, think of someone at work where you say, you know what, I outwork them, I spend more time, I've been in the company longer, reason A, B, C, one, two, three of why you should be the person to get the promotion, but you don't get the promotion, and that person got the promotion, and now every time you pass them in the hallway, it's like, I'm mad at them. They didn't even do anything to me, but I'm mad at them. Because they got the opportunity, they got the raise, they got the title, and they don't even know what they're doing. They're actually coming to me to get advice of how to do the job. And so Mordecai, maybe that exists a little bit, but it doesn't tell us that. But the only thing that the text fully gives us is this, is that Haman and Mordecai are enemies of each other. And this wasn't just that he got the job and I didn't get the job. It goes to their very breakdown of who they are. Mordecai is known as Mordecai the Jew, and that's revealed in, in chapter 2. But when we see how Haman is identified, this goes back all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 15. That Mordecai is a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin and ultimately a descendant of Saul, of King Saul's family. He can track his lineage all the way back to King Saul. And in 1 Samuel 15, King Saul is told to go out and to destroy, utterly destroy the, the Amalekites. That everybody, all the animals, everything is to be destroyed except King Saul doesn't do it. He keeps some of it that's still in, in good shape. He doesn't kill the king. Uh, the king's name was Agag of the Amalekites. 
And that's the lineage that Haman comes from because he's identified to us in Esther 3 as Haman the Agite. He comes from this lineage of the people that King Saul was supposed to eliminate and didn't do it. And the irony here is because the Israelites didn't obey and do what God called the Israelites to do, now the people that they were supposed to wipe out, they're being threatened by that Haman is about to try and wipe out God's people because they wouldn't listen and obey. You sit back and say, well, do I, is it really that important that I obey and do everything that God calls me to do it and do it 100%? Yes. It's this idea of, I think that sometimes in school that it messes with us a little bit of like C's get degrees. How many of you had that philosophy? In, whether it's in middle school, high school, college, like C's get degrees. Do you know what you call a doctor that had all C's? Doctor. You, might, you don't walk into your doctor's office and say, let me see your diploma and your, your transcript. Let me see, were they all A's or were they all C's? It's whether, can you do this job or can you not do this job? And so in this moment, King Saul doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And because of that, it's kind of rearing back up its ugly head later on. When you don't obey God and you don't follow what God calls you to do, it's going to rear its head back up eventually. And so that's what's kind of happening here is that, we don't know the complete mental state of Mordecai in this mix, but we do know is that they are against each other and that they're hostile towards one another. And even putting this into a modern-day equivalent, in the 1980s, there was a, a kind of a big hockey game that happened during the Winter Olympics. How many of you, meet, with me just saying that, simply that much, know which hockey game I'm referring to? It's the Americans versus the Soviets in the Olympics, and it wasn't even a medal game. The winner was not going to get the gold medal, the silver, silver medal, the bronze medal. The winner was going to get the right to play for a gold medal, but that hockey game was not about a hockey game. That hockey game was about America versus the Soviet Union. It was about communism versus uh, democracy. And so you have this theme that's going on, that this battle in this match, and it was the uh, the team that was never supposed to win against the team that was supposed to dominate them, and all of a sudden the little guy comes through and wins. And so when we look at this passage, we see we have Haman, who is now promoted within the king's castle against Mordecai and the Israelites, that Haman's got the ability, the, the, the signet ring, that he can make the edict, and when he makes the edict on behalf of the king, whatever he says goes. And it's going to change everything. And so now all of a sudden, Mordecai is sitting in a spot where, what do I do that he's in charge? I can't do anything. I can't control anything. And so when we look at this, we have to come from a perspective. When God calls us to do something, we have to do it to fruition. But ultimately, in the midst of this, that God is still working. One of the things that I think is really interesting in this is that Haman begins putting a plan in place. It wasn't just simply the matter of like, here's the signet ring, here's the edict, send it out to everybody, now let's wipe out the Jews. It looks that way, it feels that way, but God's already working in the midst of this because not only are the Israelites going to come out on top in this story, but ultimately God's doing it in a way where he can set up the coming of the Messiah. And we're going to see that in the, in the weeks to come. I don't want to dive into all of this, but... God sets up even dates where they line up with things like Passover, which we're, we're rapid, rapidly coming up to that. 
I've never thought of Esther as an Easter story, but there's a lot of parallels that end up happening in this. So I'm excited as we approach Easter with it. But what I, I love about this is Haman casts lots to figure out when he's going to execute this plan. And so here we are in the first month, and they're casting lots and basically saying, okay, what date are we going to, to plan this on? What date can we do this on? Imagine if you were to determine, you're saying, you know what, we're going to get married in this year. Let's figure out our wedding date. We're going to roll dice, and if I get a 12, that means it's going to be December. If I get a 6, we're going to get married in June. Not a, where do I want to get married? Uh, where is the availability? What's the price look like? Where do, uh, what venue can hold the most people? It's, we're going to throw dice, basically, to see when can we do this. And so God manipulates it because God's all-powerful, God's all-controlling uh, and, and all-knowing, and that he has it fall basically at the very end of the year. So Haman casts dice because that's what his people did, that's what his people believed, and God manipulated his, um, his belief to allow the maximum amount of time so that the Israelites would be able to be ready. But that's coming up in, in a couple weeks. And ultimately, it's this plan in this decree that God's saying, you know what? I'm aware that this is happening. I see that this is happening, but I'm going to keep on working in the background. Mordecai's not aware of what's happening. Esther's not aware of what's going to be happening. But you have uh, God working in the background, beginning to manipulate, beginning to push and position things. And we're going to hear that kind of iconic phrase from the book of Esther next week for such a time as this. But notice this, is that for each and every one of us, God's positioning you into such a unique position to reach people that I can't reach. And, I mean, everyone look around the room for a moment. Look at the people in this room. Each and every one of you interacts with people and sees people on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, that I never see. And that the people around this room never see. That God's positioning you in their life for such a time as this, that you're able to impact them and to show them who Jesus Christ is. One of the key thoughts whenever we read the Old Testament is this, is where is Jesus in the Old Testament? Because the Old Testament is really just the, the Messiah concealed, and all of a sudden when we get Jesus, we start seeing the, the revealing of how God was there all along. It's one of the things that's so incredible about our stories is think about the major moments that God has done something in your life and how it wasn't just this uh, snap of a finger and everything changed, that ultimately God was working things behind the scenes. Maybe people that were praying for you for years and because they were praying consistently and they just would not give up, they would not cease, then all of a sudden you had this moment, wherever it might be, where everything changed, where all of a sudden you say, you know what? No, I'm going to give my heart over to God, or I'm going to stop doing this, or I'm going to start doing this. And you watch, and like, it doesn't really make sense, but it all makes sense. I know I've shared it before, but when Annie and I were going through our season of saying, where are we going when we're leaving youth ministry? Of Is it to a different church doing youth ministry? Is it a different role in a church? Eventually to, is it lead pastoring? It was a year-long journey. And that's one of those moments where I remember just sitting there and thinking, like, God, what are you doing? You're calling us away. You're calling us away from what's comfortable, what we know, from friends, from family. You're calling us to go somewhere. We're saying yes, but I don't understand why or when, and you're not giving me that answer. And I remember having one position lined up, and it felt right. 
and I went away and I prayed uh, overnight about it. And I remember God saying, you need to call them tomorrow and say, no, you're going to be where you're supposed to be in the fall. And that, I, I said no, I obeyed in that sense, even though, like, didn't make a lot of sense to obey. And it set off a chain reaction that had me and Annie here in the fall of 2017. September 10th of, of, of the fall. Like, it's just the very beginning of the fall. God was working things behind the scenes that I didn't even know about yet that got us here. And so often we can look at it, well, that's great, that happened for you, like, but you've got everything figured out. Well, Annie and I have also shared that we're in the process of doing foster care, and we have been for a year, and we've felt like, you know what, we're going to do this, we're going to go through and do all of the course where we did everything and obeyed, and it's been a year and nothing has happened. And that's equally frustrating because it's that feeling of, okay, God, what are you doing? Because you told us to do this and we did it, and now here we are not understanding what we're waiting for. And all the while, I know at, at the root of it, it doesn't make it easy when you're walking through difficult situations, but you know the fact that, okay, if God is in control, if God's all-knowing, if God's all-powerful, then God is positioning me to be where I need to be when he needs me to be there. And so it's this idea of saying, okay, God, like I'm praying for this, I'm praying for healing, I'm praying for a job, I'm praying for a family member, I'm praying for a relationship that's went south, I'm praying for this, but I'm not seeing anything, and I've been praying for six months, I've been praying for two years, I've been praying for a decade, I've been praying for 20 years, I'm not seeing anything, God, I need you to do something. Realizing the fact that God is still working behind the scenes, he has not forgot about you, and that remember that God's going to work all things for good for those who believe in Christ Jesus. And if it's not good yet, he's not done yet. We cannot hold God to our timetable. Because here's what happens. We, imagine this is just the story of your life for a moment. And you read this sentence and it doesn't go your way. Well, clearly there's more in the story. And if there's more in the story, that means that God's not done with your story yet. And if we're going to get upset about, well, I really don't like this sentence, God. I need you to do something different about this sentence. Then we can lose track of what God did in the paragraph before, the chapter before, the, the chapters before. We can lose sight of God's done all this for me, but now all of a sudden I'm going to lose my trust over this sentence. And we can look at Mordecai and say, I can understand, Mordecai, why you're frustrated. You just saved the king's life. You got Esther position to be queen, and now you're probably thinking, well, I'm going to get this promotion. Nope, you're not getting this promotion. Not yet, at least. Because God is positioning you for the right thing at the right time. And when you follow that plan, and when you allow God to work that plan out, you'll be amazed at how God has you at the right place at the right time. It doesn't make it easy, though. I need you to hear that, because you can say, well, yeah, when, when life is going great, that's, that's easy to say. But here's the thing, is God consistently is positioning us in dealing with issues, and when things come up against us, is taking them, twisting them, manipulating them, and then allowing us to show and point glory back to God through our situations. We need to always be pointing things back to God. So here's our application for the, today. As the narrative advances in the story, the message feels like it's getting darker and darker, that all of a sudden we go from everything is normal to now Esther has become queen, 
to now Haman is threatening to kill not just Mordecai, all the Jews, which we're going to, as we go through, is going to impact Esther. And remember, to this point, Mordecai told Esther, do not tell anyone that you're a Jew. So here is Esther, when she does get, eventually get word of this, she's sitting in the, in the palace, basically thinking, like, I'm the queen, all the Jews are to be killed, and I'm a Jew, what does this mean for me? And so you have that stress, you have that worry that's going on. But here's the thing, is we need to make sure that we understand our place in this situation that's going on in, in our world and that we don't conform to the world. Luke 6, 22 through 23 says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. So often when people hate us and get upset with us and they exclude us and they revile us, we want to get our reward here on earth. So we then begin to defend ourselves. But we're not supposed to defend ourselves. We're supposed to allow God to defend us. Because God is going to defend us dramatically better than any of us can defend ourselves. But so often, well, I've, I don't see God working, so I'm going to start working on behalf of God. When you work on behalf of God, that's when you make mistakes. And when you make mistakes, you set yourself back. And when you set yourself back, God can still work. God can still redeem that situation. But you and you're thinking that, like, I'm going to advance the kingdom of God. And God's not saying anything, so I'm just going to kick the door down. How many of you know that sometimes you have to kick a door down? If there's a fire in the house, the firefighters have to come and they have to kick the door down in order to save those who are in the house. But if you say, you know what, I lost my key. And even though I've got my, my husband, my wife, my children that all have keys and they can all be here in 10 minutes, I've got to get into this house immediately. And you kick the door down. Do you know what happens? Now you've got a big bill because you've got to fix the door. Because you were impatient to wait for it to play out the way it was supposed to play out. When you're supposed to kick the door down and God calls you to kick the door down, kick that door down because for all we know, the whole house needs to be torn down. But when it's you trying to force your will, all of a sudden things are not going to go your way. You're not storing up treasures on earth. You're storing up treasures in heaven. So stop trying to make things happen here that aren't supposed to happen. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let that one drop in your mind for a moment, into your heart. So often, we want to be right, so we'll make ourselves right. We'll win arguments, but in the process of winning arguments, we actually turn people away from God. Congratulations. I'm so glad that you can debate someone better than someone else. Did you point them to Jesus? I mean, even hear this. So that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds. When someone is heaping evil at you, when someone is beating you up, start throwing good deeds back at them. I, I love that thought of, like, kill them with kindness. Not that you're going to actually kill them, but you want to kill them with kindness when all of a sudden they start throwing everything against you. Like, God loves you. How can I serve you? How can I take care of you? 
because you want to see someone's life get transformed, you're not going to just do it by simply out-debating them. You can watch, let me hop on YouTube, you can watch people that are smarter than I am debate each other for hours on topics. They don't change anyone's mind, but we just make bigger divides amongst unbelievers and believers. I want to be a church that when people come in, they say, you know what, I don't know if I even believe all of this Christian stuff, but the people there love me, they care for me, and I feel something when I'm there. And when people can feel that, then the Holy Spirit has room to begin moving and working in their heart. But when you start saying, you know what, it's more important for me to be right and to prove them wrong, when you get into that kind of uh, imagery, you start pushing people away. 2 Timothy 3, 12-13 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Here's the thing, for every one of us in this room, there's going to be moments, there's going to be times in your life, pages, paragraphs, maybe even chapters, where it feels like life is not going the way you expect it to, that it's not fair, and know this, God is still working. The problem is you get stuck on this page and like, well, I don't know how I'm going to go. This is not how I plan my life. This is not how I wanted it to look. All you have to do is get to the next page and then things begin to change. But the problem is you get so hyper-focused on this sentence. Well, I got to do something about it then because God's clearly not doing something. So I'm going to act on God's behalf where if you just let God play it out the way God was going to do it, you get onto the next page and you realize, oh, this is where God was going to take me. Because when you force things to happen, situations happen. This hostility goes all the way back to the Cain killing Abel. Darkness and light will always be in opposition. But our job is not to, our job as individuals, not to defeat darkness. That's God's job. My job is to bring light into the darkness. And that light is the name of Jesus Christ. I can't do anything, but Jesus Christ can illuminate a dark world. And when we start taking that pressure off of ourselves of, well, I've got to go and do this and act on behalf of God. No, I just have to be faithful and consistent to do what God has wanted me to do. Mordecai can be upset, but Mordecai actually makes the problem worse here. Why is this edict written? Why is there a threat to the, all the Jewish people? Because Mordecai couldn't honor someone that he thought was an, an unjust leader. Think about that one for a moment. What's one of the biggest issues in America today? No matter who wins an election, nobody can honor someone that they think is an unjust leader. But if we could honor, even leaders were like, oh, I don't know, they don't really deserve to be honored. What does the Bible tell us? That nobody gets into places of authority unless God places them there for such a time as this? You see, we, I said it last week. We like when we can read ourselves into David, and David kills Goliath. But sometimes we're Goliath, and we're getting in the way of what God wants to do. Now, God uses the situation that Mordecai creates, and he still wins in this story. But we need to get out of God's way sometimes. Here's the thing you got to realize. All around the world, for all of human history, there's unjust governments, there's unjust leaders. Who's the, the one entity that's still sitting on the throne? That's God. God has not been knocked off the throne. When you can look and say, well, this is going on and this gets publicity and that doesn't get publicity. If you remember a few years ago when ISIS captured several people claiming to be Christians, 
line them up in a row and beheaded them. They didn't make the national news, not the way that so many other things do. And it happened a couple times. That you have countries around the world that are killing Christians daily. And we even think of China where it's being, uh, Christians are being persecuted and they're killed daily. As far as I know, that doesn't happen on the same kind of level here in America. But when we get persecuted, we claim persecution of, can you believe it? They're persecuting me for my belief. I'm worried that if we were to sit around with a group of Chinese believers and tell them we're really getting persecuted here in America, it's like, oh, are you in jail? Have they withheld food from you? Have they kicked you? Have they stomped on you? Uh, do you have access to a single page of the Bible? They're like, no, oh, well, I've got five Bibles in my house and I've got one on my app. They just said mean things to me on Facebook. I th- they're like, so where's the persecution at? Ultimately, People will know us by the way that we respond to them. So let's respond in love. Not, not respond in a way of like, I've got to win the argument, but I want to advance the kingdom of God. And if God's calling me to do that in love, then I'm going to do that in love. It's the importance of knowing the voice of the Holy Spirit, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, knowing the full counsel of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and being able to speak it and prepare it and teach it, and not just waiting on somebody else to, to step up of Imagine this. You get so confident in God's word and understanding God's word and speaking God's word that you don't have to say, well, you should come to my church and listen to my pastor. Or you should listen to this pastor talk on this topic on YouTube because they answer all the questions. You can sit back and say, you know what? Here's what the good news of Jesus Christ says. Let me explain it to you. Because so many people, the vast majority of people that meet Jesus actually meet Jesus outside of the church because people one-on-one are discipling them. And that's how a church actually grows the quickest, grows the healthiest, how we start building disciples and we start advancing the name of Jesus Christ. Because if you're just sitting back waiting for someone else to do it, it's never going to get done. But when we're all saying, let me play my part, and I don't care what happens uh, to me, I don't care if I'm persecuted, I don't care if people say mean things about me, if they tweet bad things about me, whatever it might be, that I'm just going to be consistent and I'm going to follow what God's calling me to do. I'm not looking to kick down doors that aren't supposed to be kicked down, that I'm not looking to make waves just for the sake of making waves. Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Worship team, if you come forward. Here's the thing is we have to get ready so that we can stand firm. So often we want to just say, okay, God, I'm in a situation here. I'm in a difficult moment. I need you to show up. But we've done no preparation to stand firm. I mean, hear that again. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That means you have to take up the whole armor of God. You have to take on the breastplate of righteousness. You need the helmet of salvation. You need the, the, the belt of truth. You need all of those uh, items. And you're like, well, how can you just rattle those off? Because I've studied the passage before. So we need to be able to say, I know what the, the word of God says. I know what I need to do. And the thing that I love about the armor of God when you study it is there is nothing on the back. Because we are not playing a game of defense. We're playing a game of offense. I don't want to hear defense wins championships in the kingdom of God. No offense does because God has already won on the cross. Our objective here is to go forth and to advance and take back the land and take back the people that Satan has attempted to steal 
because none of the fiery darts of the enemy are going to be able to defeat you. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. You just have to approach it and say, you know what, God? I know you're moving even if I don't see it, and I'm okay with that. Mordecai in this initial moment, he's not okay with that. He's trying to make things happen his own way, and it starts going poorly for him because of it. But when you get to the end of the story, you realize God has been working it the entire time. And I want to encourage you with that this morning, as we're going to sing Waymaker to end this this morning, that even when you don't see God moving, just know and trust that he is. Even when you can't feel him, trust and know that he's there. That I can't explain every situation that's going wrong in your life today. I can't. I wish I could. I wish I had these magical words that could always encourage every single person and I could say something. It's like, okay, you just took all the weight off my shoulders. I can't do that. But the peace from heaven can. And when you walk into a situation saying, you know what, I don't understand why this sickness is, is happening. Trust that, you know what, God's positioning me for something. I'm facing something. So God, how do you want me to use this something to advance your kingdom? It's a perspective change. And I would love to tell you that it's easy and that I can do it every single time the first time. I'm better than I used to be. I'm not as good as I should be. But when something comes up against you and you say, well, this isn't good yet. You say, okay, God, I need you to get me through this so that I can use this as a testimony. I can use this to advance your kingdom. So would you just stand? And I just want to worship God this morning and just say, God, It doesn't matter if I see you. It doesn't matter if I feel you. I know that you are working and you are making a way. The altars are open if you need them. If not, just let's stand and worship God.